Hello, and welcome to the DMV Business Show, a weekly show where we get to meet local business and community leaders in the DC, Maryland, and Virginia area. They get to impact their story and how they got there. You can expect to hear advice and learn about their journey and how they went from point A to point B. My name is Odo Sevilla, and I'm a commercial real estate advisor in the local DC, Maryland, and Northern Virginia area. I have been very fortunate to have worked with many amazing entrepreneurs and executives from startup founders to international Fortune 500 companies. And one of the things I love about what I do is I get to form these great relationships with some interesting people. I get to know them and I learn about how it all started. And I love hearing a good business story. When I'm not working in commercial real estate, I just also happen to be the host of this show. So please enjoy and welcome to the DMV Business Show. Welcome to the DMV Business Show. I'm your host, Odo Sevilla. And today I have a very special guest for you, Jamie McDonald. Jamie is the CEO of Upsurge Baltimore. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thanks so much, Otto. It's great to be with you. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. But before we go into your personal journey, if you could just give a brief overview to the audience, Jamie, of who is Upsurge Baltimore? Sure. Uh, Upsurge Baltimore is an initiative that is about a year old, um, started in April of last year. And it was the result of um, a long series of conversations among a group of Baltimore leaders um, led by Johns Hopkins, Brown Advisory, University of Maryland, T. Rowe Price, Whiting Turner, it's sort of a who's who of Baltimore um, business and, um, and philanthropic leaders. And the, the goal was to, um, to fill a gap in our economy you know, Baltimore has strong Main Street businesses and, um, and organizations that work to support Main Street businesses. And we have uh, still a lot of large companies um, that call Baltimore home and, and those sort of like large company support engines to work with those. And we had this burgeoning tech economy um, in Baltimore, but not a parallel initiative that was focused on how we really accelerate the growth of the tech economy in Baltimore, um, but how we do it in a way that is really responsive to the moment that we're in as a world when we all recognize that, um, you know, equity and diversity are really foundational to business success, not, you know, opportunities, but or not obligations, but opportunities. And, um, and so we organized Upsurge around this vision to become the country's first Equitech city. Equitech is a phrase that we coined to describe what it would mean to have a truly inclusive tech economy. And so what that means from our perspective is really three things. It means one, that we are you know, creating a friendly, supportive environment for tech companies of any background, um, led by founders of any background, but if they you know, work with us, we're constantly sharing the value, they're my, my workmates, constantly sharing the value of diverse teams, leadership boards, and cap tables in terms of company performance. We could talk in a, a little later about some of the studies that have been done that demonstrate, you know, the impact that diversity has on company performance. Um, the second piece is to really build a differentiated um, offering around supporting diverse entrepreneurs. So women, founders of color, LGBT founders, differently abled founders, and, um, and 
you know, and really sort of setting Baltimore apart as a city that one, it makes sense just given the makeup of our city demographically, but secondly, we also have a particularly diverse base of entrepreneurs as a jumping off point. So we start in a, in a strong place. And then the third piece, which I think is a really big part of what differentiates our effort from the tech ecosystem builders in other communities, is that we have a dedicated focus on also building on-ramps into technology for the Baltimoreans who want them. So that ranges from upskilling folks who perhaps don't have college degrees um, to, you know, to, to working with young people to just show them that technology is an option for their futures um, to the actual, like sort of the very obvious things like trying to keep the students from our 14 universities in Baltimore working for our tech companies. So that whole sort of on-ramping um, work stream is one that is just not typical of other ecosystem builders around the country, but we think it's absolutely vital to the work that we're doing. So that's sort of upsurge in a nutshell, but we can get into a lot more of the details with your questions. No, no, definitely. I, I especially like the third part because it's very true. You don't see that much in the tech ecosystem. That's right. And, and I think what we know is um, there's no lack of capability in communities that haven't necessarily found a pathway into technology before, there's generally a lack of awareness and a lack of that sort of um, that particular type of either education or skills training that others take for granted. And so we have sort of built an infrastructure in process. I mean, all of this is is building, not built. Um, but we we sort of set our sights on 2030. Everything we talk about, we talk about Equitech 2030. And um, and by 2030, we want to be able to say that we're the world's deepest um, ecosystem of inclusive tech companies, and um, and so we are we're building all those building blocks to work toward that goal. I love that. I can't wait to get into it. Uh, but before that, a little bit more about yourself. Are you originally from the the area here, the DMV area? I'm not. I mean, I'm from up the road. I'm I'm a native of Philly. Um, I'm a city kid from you know, downtown Philly. Um, I have a, I had a very young single mom and, um, and we, we lived for part of my life in center city, um, but a good, most of my growing up in South Philly. And this was sort of in the, the Rocky era when, um, you know, I'm, I, I was born in the sixties and, and, um, you know, South Philly was sort of on everybody's minds because Rocky was so big then and everybody remembers the famous run up 9th Street, the Italian market. I actually worked at a fruit stand in the Italian market when they were filming that. My little like fingers are in the movie, <laughs> <laughs> you know, as he's walking by um, or running by. And, um, you know, and I, I went to public schools in Philly. My, I, I, I went to this pretty amazing public school that I encourage everybody to to learn about um, that still exists today. It's a magnet school that was started. I want to say it was probably started in the 50s in Philly as an experiment um, where they took kids of all backgrounds from across the city. And um, you know, they didn't have any buses or anything. So you had to be able to you had to be willing to get yourself there on public transportation. But if you got yourself there, it was a school that started, everybody tested in third grade and 
kids were, you know, given the opportunity to go to the school and um, you started, you know, with two languages and four. So I went there fourth grade all the way through. You started two languages in fourth grade. So you took Latin and another language. I did Latin and French. You know, everybody by the time they were, you know, later in were in calculus. And, and it was and it was interesting because it was a school that by today's standards would be quite unusual. It was probably half black, maybe 20, 25% white, and then another 25% um, AAPI and Latino. And like, you know, it was just such a melting pot of Philadelphia. And, um, and so I just grew up, and I think this has influenced a lot of my work over the years. I grew up thinking that brilliant kids looked like everybody. I just didn't know any different. You know, the smartest kids in our class could have been black, Latino, white, or Asian, right? Like you just, there was no, there was no sort of separation in ability. And it, it's definitely influenced much of the rest of the way I've looked at the world for the rest of my life. Um, then I was a commuter kid in college. I went to a small school in Philly called Textile. But now it's called Jefferson. It's had a couple iterations since then. Um, but I, I took economics my second year in college and had a, um, had a professor that really inspired me. And I was, I was top of my class in this school. So, I mean, I'm not taking anything away from, you know, you have, no matter what you do, you have to work hard, right. To get these kind of opportunities. And, um, and I ended up through a relationship that he had getting to go to Cornell for graduate school on a teaching assistantship, which I wouldn't have been able to afford otherwise. And so that was my stepping stone into my investment banking life, because despite the fact that I was the same kid, whether I went to Cornell or I didn't, I mean, I learned a lot, but I was still the same kid. I never would have even had a door open to me coming out of the college I went, I went to undergrad. So Cornell opened a different door for me. And, um, and that also sits with me, right? That, that, you know, sometimes that one name on your resume just changes people's perspective on somebody who was really the same person before and after they had that opportunity. Um, and then I went to work at Alex Brown, which was big investment bank in Baltimore, um, was a national investment bank, but based in Baltimore. Um, we were one of the first national specialty investment banks. So we worked with tech companies. Um, broadly, but tech, consumer, healthcare, and um, transportation companies as really big tech was emerging. And it's funny because back then they were the risky companies. I started there in 1986 and um, we brought Microsoft, Google, Amazon, we brought all those companies public, Starbucks, um, but they were the they were the high risk companies back then that the big investment banks weren't really touching. And we were the investment bank that brought them all public. We were ultimately sold to Bankers Trust and then Deutsche Bank. And um, I was there through that whole time. Um, I, you know, I worked really hard. I was managing director when I was 29. And I- um, That's I, pretty young for, for an MD, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, I started, I, I was always like a year ahead in school because this, okay. this is a going back thing because of Masterman. So I was- I was probably, I would have been 30 if I had graduated at a, the normal time for my age. Okay. Um, but I, but again, I, I did 
I did move fast. I was given a lot of opportunity there. And I ultimately spent the bulk of my time at Alex Brown as co-head of the private equity coverage group. So I worked with venture capital. And back in the day, we called them LBO funds. Nobody calls them that anymore. Um, you know, making sure that we were on their radar for any deals that they might want to do um, with Alex Brown. And that sort of gave me my my real lens on what what private equity looked like from the inside. And I saw it from both sides because I saw it from the company side because they were our clients. And I saw it from the, you know, the private equity side because that was I was a relationship anger. So that was where I that was where my relationships were. And, um, and then I became an entrepreneur. Um, started and sold a couple of companies. And my second company, I actually sold to a DC-based company called Network for Good. It was a software company focused on online giving and civic engagement. And um, and then I advised startups and social movements for the next seven years until, you know, the group of us started really talking about this, you know, this need in Baltimore to really ramp up our tech economy. And um, And here I am. That's great. Jamie, when you mentioned LBO, it just brought back memories. Did you ever work with Milken, Mike Milken? I didn't work with Mike Milken, but I did work with the other famous LBO funds of the day with KKR and those kind of firms. Okay. Um, Milken was a bit before we were really, that was like one notch earlier than, um, than our group's, our group's formation. You know, we were in the heyday of those like, big mega industrial LBO deals um, and the roll-up craze. I don't know if you would remember any of this. You're probably too young. But anyway, there there were a few different, you know, there were a few different kind of LBO waves yeah. back in the 90s and, um, and the early 2000s. And it was, um, it was a crazy time. And then ultimately, obviously, the, the shine came off LBO funds like significantly. And that's why they all stopped calling themselves that. And private equity became the term. But also hedge funds, a lot of them now are more blended entities. They're not yes. really straight funds anymore. So, so it's continued to evolve. Um, but, but it was an interesting time to be in that world. So it was around, I guess, KKR, Kravitz. Uh, I don't know if it was before Boeski, Ivan Boeski, or Icon. And yeah, I mean, yeah, they were all. So, so there was a difference between like the Raiders, like the corporate Raiders, like the Boeskis and yeah. those folks, and the actual funds, and particularly because again, Alex Brown was working with growth companies. Okay. So, the, so a lot of the LBO funds that we work with, if we were talking to KKR, it wasn't necessarily because we were going to work with one of their companies. We were often working with companies that their companies might want to acquire because they were, they tended to work with these big sort of mega industrial companies. That was who they were invested in. So we were kind of, we were hitting all different points of the continuum with the smaller private equity firms. We were, we were working with their investment companies, right? The things that they were invested in and we were helping them go public or sell themselves or acquire other companies with the big, big LBO funds, we were typically selling a company to them. I understand. Um, if I can take you back for a moment, you mentioned earlier you grew up with a single mother, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in South Philly. How, how was that experience? You, you've accomplished so much. And, and I, want, I don't know if you have any siblings or anything, but how, how, was it, how was the household back there? If you can take us back to South Philly. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I had a very smart mother who, um, you know, for, she got married when she was 18 to the wrong person. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's a story we all know. And, um, you know, and she, I have two sisters. Um, she had all three of us by the time she was 23. And, um, so three girls. Yep. Okay. <laughs> and, um, you know, and my mother was as smart, you know, it's a sort of the same thing I was saying about myself. Like my mother is as smart as anybody who ever went to a great college or whatever. She just didn't have that pathway of opportunity. It wasn't, that wasn't her parents' priority for her to go to college, you know, it's different era. Um, and I think as a result, you know, for a chunk of my early growing up, she was the receptionist at the Y downtown. Um, and I'm sure for her, that was probably a, you know, a very like routine and frustrating and not particularly challenging job, but she moved up there. She became like the membership director and we got to go every day after school. And, um, you know, part of another thing that's been a big influence in my life that started really at the Y is I've always participated in sports. I still do today um, pretty actively. And, you know, so I did gymnastics my whole growing up. My first company that I ever started, company, <laughs> my first little startup, I started when I was nine. Um, I basically started a little tumbling school for little kids because all the mothers would sit at the Y when their older kids were participating in activities and they would get frustrated. I don't know if you've ever been to an old fashioned Y, but it used to be everything was in one big room, like the basketball courts, they, they'd like put the nets up during the day and like gymnastics would happen or like other sports, but everything was in one big giant room. So you can imagine if you're a mother with little kids and you're trying to like keep them from running around in this giant room, it was impossible. And I wanted, crazy the things that motivate you, but I wanted this pair of rainbow jeans that I, I just, this, this cool girl in school had them and I wanted them and we couldn't afford them. And I was like, all right, I'm going to figure out how I make my own money. And so I literally created a little flyer on an old mimeograph machine. And I went around to all the mothers who had little kids. And I said, you know, I'll take your kids for an hour, a dollar per kid per hour. I'll take 10 kids each hour. And for three hours in the afternoon, I would take these 10 kids into like this sort of this um, like padded room that, that again, they used to have in all the wise. They did like jujitsu and, you know, martial arts and stuff. And so they had these padded rooms so people could kind of bang against the walls. And, um, and, and so I was making like $10 per hour for three hours a day, most days. And I got those jeans in like three days and I started to really like figure out, I, like, I had my own money. And I got fry boots and I was like, I, I was able to start to do things that, that I had put myself in a position to accomplish. And, um, and so that was my first taste of entrepreneurship. I did a bunch of other things over the years. Um, but I always just sort of had this sense that in a pinch, I could survive. I could figure out how to make money. And, um, and I always have appreciated that in terms of, you know, the opportunity for other people who might not otherwise see, you know, what the path forward is that entrepreneurship can be a different way for people to find a path. Sure. 
in in your community in South Philly, did, did many go end up going to Ivy League school or Cornell? Was that something oh my common? God, no. Or? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, so there were some other South Philly kids that went to Masterman, um, and you know they. I think that you know I think they probably went to just a ring. I think we all had a. I mean the 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 kids. You, we got a great education. There was certainly the occasional kid every, you know, year or two that went straight into a really great school. But a lot of us went to like the Philadelphia schools, right? Sure. So we went, you know, there, Philly has so many colleges. It's like Baltimore. Philly probably has the same number, 13 or 14 colleges. And I think most kids, the, the issues back in the 80s, you know, it's it's just hard to project forward. But you know, back in the 80s, a lot of kids made their choices, not just on the cost of the school, but the cost of getting to the school, right? So for me, one of the challenges with Cornell was just being able to get back and forth. I had to like, you know, again, I worked, so I got myself a little car, a green Volkswagen bug, and I would drive myself back and forth to Cornell. I had to learn how to fix it because if it broke down, you know, you were like in the middle of nowhere back in those days. And so, yeah, I mean, it, I think graduate school was probably more likely the opportunity that that some people had if they, you know, coming out of the schools that we even, you know, even going to a masterman. Um, but, you know, you asked about my sisters. Interestingly, they are both quite smart, too, but for whatever reason, um, never liked the best test takers. So they didn't go to masterman. And my sisters went to the zone school and neither one of them graduated from high school. So it does show you a bit like the difference in trajectory that a school can make. They eventually, one got a, their GED, one didn't, but they both are doing fine. But it's just, it does really show you kind of how sometimes like these small things that like they seem like one degree of difference when you're young, but they can be like huge degrees of difference as you get older. And so again, I'm, I'm mindful of this whole pathways, you know, work stream that we're focused on because I think that, you know, that could be that one degree shift in trajectory for people's lives that, you know, really changes things in the long run. Mm -hmm. How long were you at Alex Brown for? 17 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. In the private equity group there, right? Well, so I started, um, I was initially actually hired just for what we thought was going to be a year or two project. Um, I was hired by a guy who was on the board that's a whole other story. Um, who he and the CEO, he, he and the CEO at the time, um, this was 1986. They had just gone public, and they were um, thinking about a couple of their key business lines. Retail back then is what we called the stock brokerage business, like traditional stock brokers. That was where I started was, you know, I, I was brought in to do a big study of the retail client base. In grad school, I had done some market research, I wouldn't call it market research, but I'd done these big kind of research studies. And so that was, I had an experience base that helped me get that first job. And um, so I did that first big project, presented the results to the board, got kind of got, I think, well connected with an people there that thought I was smart. And, and then the, uh, the next big group that they wanted to understand was the relationships that they had with venture capital clients. And those were not people who were gonna fill out surveys. 
So I was basically sent on like a road trip around the country to interview VCs all over the place and um, and ultimately created, you know, did a study of what we found about their view of Alex Brown, when they would think about us, why they would work with us, why they wouldn't, what they saw as, you know, as sort of coming in the future, how they thought about investments in their own portfolios. And that work and the follow-up from it took about a year. So I built relationships with a bunch of VCs. And so when, when we, you know, I, I recommended that essentially a relationship coverage group be formed in investment banking to do it. And um, not thinking that that was going to be my role, but, mm -hmm. um, but I was eventually asked to take that on after kind of a couple of other pathways I went down. I think they, they, they tried to get it going and it, it didn't get going initially. And then I, with another guy who'd been a longtime investment banker, I sort of brought the the marketing and the research lens on it. He brought the long time deep deal knowledge and together we built the group. And, um, and then that's where I was for about 13 years of my time there. That's great. I'm sure Jamie, that, that road trip you did across the country, visiting to different VCs sort of helped cement and even deepen your relationship within that VC community. Right. I, I mean, it started my relationship. I had none before. Okay. Then, and, um, but, but because these were like in-depth, look, they, a lot of VCs had good relationships at Alex Brown, mm -hmm. but it's hard to talk to like the, your point of contact and say what you do and don't like about what's happening. It was a lot easier for, I was not threatening. Mm -hmm. I was just, I was somebody just there to learn and I could ask the questions like what has worked well, what hasn't. So I was spending, you know, I would go into a firm basically for a day. And if they had, you know, five partners that had worked actively with Alex Brown, I'd spend an hour with each of those partners. And then when I wrote the summary, I wanted to make sure we got it right. So I would send it back to them. And then sometimes I'd have a conversation about, well, you didn't quite capture, meaning me, Jamie, you didn't quite capture this, you know, this point I was making. I was trying to really say this. So there was a lot of back and forth. And then we gave them essentially the the ability to sort of bless the final report on their firm's view of Alex Brown. So there was a lot of there was a lot of back and forth to make sure that we were accurately reflecting the opportunity and the challenges in our relationships with them. And um so it just it just started it off. Mm -hmm. you know, I I just had a, a different kind of dialogue than they'll typically have with an investment bank. Okay. After 17 years, what made you decide to leave? Well, truthfully, what made me decide to leave was um, two things. So my husband, who wasn't at Alex Brown when I started, but we met, he actually moved to Alex Brown when I'd been there maybe five years. So we were both working there. Um, after the Deutsche Bank acquisition, um, most of the investment banking work was starting to migrate to New York and London. Um, we didn't have any interest in moving, but I might've been able to, to keep, to stay working in Baltimore. But my husband, they were talking to about going to Chicago. <laughs> we're just like, you know, we're married, right? Like, I, I, even if I say he can't go to Chicago and I go to New York or London and we don't want to have like we we want to stay in Baltimore. Our kids were at, I have three kids. Our kids were, you know, in 
my younger ones were in, you know, middle school at that point. My daughter was, you know, was little, but like, it just wasn't the time for us. Plus Deutsche Bank had bought a mutual fund company called Scudder. And, um, and they were offering a very generous buyout to managing directors. And so they ultimately made that available to everyone across the firm who every MD that was interested, not, I, I mean, Actually, I shouldn't say that I know it was everyone. They certainly made it available to all the Baltimore-based Alex Brown MDs if they were interested in taking a buyout and not moving to one of these other places. So for me, it was a great time to go, you know, got a great check going out the door. And I was, 17 years is a long time. Um, I was definitely ready to think about what was next. And, um, you know, I had a great I had a great run, you know, for for a long time with people I really enjoyed working with, and um, and even in the even in the Deutsche Bank period, that was that had its own interesting um, benefits because as the European bank, they were more progressive around things related to women. They 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 had certain benefits that looked a lot more like a European company than. U.S. companies. So there was each phase was interesting in different ways, but I felt like I had, I had sort of reached a point where I'd gotten what I was going to get out of it. When you reached that point, did you have any idea what would be the next chapter? I didn't. Um, I, you know, I think that, um, I think I probably always knew that, that it was going to be entrepreneurship in some form. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I don't think I knew that, I don't think I knew whether I was going to go work for an entrepreneurial company, whether I wanted to start something on my own, like, I, I, I really didn't know. And honestly, after that long in one place, I think that, that I also felt like I needed a little bit of time that I had been essentially hurtling forward since I was a kid, you know, cause I didn't, I didn't, I never had the ability financially. I mean, until well into my Alex Brown years, I never had the ability financially to take a real break and think. And so, um, so anyway, it, it was a chance for me to step back and reflect and, and decide what was next for me. And it took me a little while to get there, but um, but yeah, the entrepreneurship was probably always gonna be what it was, but I wasn't sure when I left. Sure. I know after Alex Brown, you mentioned you, you started several companies. What was that first one after you left Alex Brown? Yeah, so my, um, my first one was, um, was <laughs> actually a gym. I told you I've always been really into sports and I didn't I didn't start this company thinking I would actually work in it. I was thinking I was doing it as an investment. That's like the first dumb mistake of entrepreneurship ever, the biggest dumb mistake ever. I mean, I so it was a very specialized gym specifically for athletes. Um there are many more of those now, but this would have been um this would have been 2003 and um and they were starting to emerge around the country i'd always played and coached sports i had kids who were athletes i i had some connections with the ravens and some other people and i thought that this concept of hiring 
strength and conditioning coaches from colleges across the country, they don't make any money. And like you could bring them into an environment where you could pay them a little more than they were getting paid. They can still work with, you know, high school, college, and in some cases, professional athletes um, in a gym built for that purpose. And, um, and I, my goal was I was going to hire somebody to run the whole place. And it was an investment. It was just sort of something that really interested me. And, um, and while I figured out what was really next for me, it felt like this was an interesting business to invest in. Well, about six weeks in after we opened, I was like, what the heck have you done? Um, it was, and the thing I learned was it's not that I, um, that I was wrong necessarily about my instinct. Business was actually good. But the thing that, that I misjudged was how much I needed to be present. Like that you, there's just no replacement for an entrepreneur's passion and energy in a business. And um, you can't just hire, you know, you just can't hire somebody, particularly something kind of innovative and different where there's not necessarily a strong model for how to do it well. Um, you can't just hire somebody and, and, and sort of say, go make this a home run. So I did ultimately get to the point a couple years in where I did find that right person who could really lead it. But for a couple of years, I was like working crazy hours in sort of a retail business, right? And the thing about retail businesses, I have so much respect for small business owners, is they are judged often by things that have no, like no relationship to their product. And what I mean by that is, so I owned a gym for athletes. So the product was, are we training athletes to perform better in their chosen sport? And we were doing that so well. But when you own a gym, you are judged by the friendliness of the person at the front desk and whether the toilet paper is on the toilet paper roll and whether, you know, there are clean towels in the bed. Like you're judged on all these other things that really don't have much to do with your product. And, and I think that that is something that we don't give enough credit to, to, to really successful small businesses that get all those different pieces right. That is so hard to do. And particularly if the owner of the small business was doing something in a lane of their passion. So, because you essentially become a small business owner and then you get to stop, you have to stop working in your passion. You work on all the other things, right? The people that get to work on the passion points are the other people, right? So my coaches and the, the sort of the, the GM worked with all the athletes I worked with their complaining parents and, <laughs> and on making sure that all the other stuff was right. And it, it's, those are really tough businesses. So um, I had always said to myself, because I was viewing it as an investment that I was going to give it five years. And, um, and I got so lucky because we sold in July of 2008 and the world went to hell in August of 2008. Everything crashed. And so sold the business well didn't make a fortune, but did fine, learned a ton, and, um, and then said, I'm going to sit back and reflect on this entrepreneurial experience for a while, and then didn't start my next company till 2011. I just kind of did some advisory stuff, and um, it, was, it, was, it was really quite an experience. After that experience, Jamie, did you ever do anything retail-related again or no? Never, and <laughs> told my kids... 
don't ever do this if you, you know, unless you absolutely have to. But I will say I worked with a bunch of um, entrepreneurs who had those kinds of businesses just to sort of like, you know, share my experiences. Um, in Baltimore, I do a lot of free coaching outside of Baltimore. I have a paid practice or had a paid practice. Um, but I, you know, I created this group called the Courageous, which was, you know, essentially folks who were trying to start either businesses or other kinds of initiatives that, um, you know, where I, I could give them the benefit of my experience. And so um, it was, <laughs> it was really one of the most formative experiences of my life, owning that kind of a company. And while I, I don't wish the stress and the frustrations of that kind of business on anybody who isn't really up for it. Mm -hmm. um, it is a tremendous learning experience and gives you a lot of respect for people that own small businesses. Yeah. You mentioned uh, coaching. You, you no longer have that coaching and advisory practice? No, I mean, because essentially with Upsurge, I do that all day, every day with yes. more founders now. Um, and you know, and I do think it's the kind of thing I can always go back to if, you know, someday I retire and I don't know, sit in the sunshine and <laughs> I decide I want to have some clients again. Um, but I mean, I'm very like this, this gives me the ability to do that work, which I do love, um, but to do it in a really strategic way that is trying to move a whole city economy forward, um, or at least a piece of it. Um, around this work. And so in many ways, it is sort of the ideal culmination of a lot of my experiences and my passion for Baltimore, um, all coming together at once. And I'm in my mid fifties now. So like, really, if I think about it, this is sort of like, I, I don't know, this is a, this is a last big sprint toward whatever lies on the other side of this. I don't like to say retirement because it's a little hard for me to imagine like not working, but I won't necessarily work this way, you know, at some point. And, um, and so this is, you know, this feels like it's the, it's the absolute sort of perfect culmination of, you know, a 30 some year career kind of moving toward this moment. Yeah. How did you and Upsearch come about? being together? Well, I was part of that working group that was thinking about tech in Baltimore. So just okay. part of a group of folks that were talking about it um, with those people that I mentioned. And ultimately, as we started to think about who could run it, um, you know, it, they just sort of said, look, you're the person to do it. And I, it took me a little bit to decide. I knew how much of a lift it was going to be and um, how how hard it can be to to do something that that sits at a pretty emotional intersection of opportunity um and so i thought hard about it but but i'm glad that i did it and um you know big part of making that all work was hiring the right team and i have an amazing team that we've brought together working on this and so um, and and we brought TechStars to Baltimore, which is a you know a global accelerator. So we we did some things right out of the gate that I think were really important because they they 
we, we coined the phrase Equitech. So when we launched, we already had this defining vision. When we worked with Techstars, one of the first things that we did is we made it the Techstars Equitech Accelerator. So the first global Equitech Accelerator. So Equitech as a, as a, both as a word and as a vision, got the text the Techstars megaphone globally. Mm-hmm. Like that's because Techstars has a huge global startup megaphone. And we could never have done that on our own. So that was part of the reason we partnered with Techstars was we knew in addition to being a strong accelerator partner, we also knew that their megaphone gave us value that we couldn't derive. We couldn't go pay a marketing firm to go do that for us because we couldn't accrue that kind of credibility. So so we did a few things right out of the gate that I think were important. And um, and then, as I said, having the right people on the team, like living what we talk about, you know, we have a fully diverse team. Um, and, you know, and then really making sure that we also were constantly um, celebrating and supporting everyone but continually educating um, and and hopefully driving people to think more concretely about how they embrace Equitech and inclusion and diversity as you know as an opportunity and not an obligation, not a checkbox to be checked because you have to, but something that is actually going to drive your company performance. One of the things we say all the time as a team is we're sort of like a house of worship, a church, a synagogue, whatever, um, that everyone is welcome through our doors. But if you come in to our work, you're going to hear the things we believe um, and the things that sort of are the values that underpin our work. And um, then we hope that people consider embracing those in their own, you know, progress as a company. That's great. How are you able to involve the community in Baltimore as far as you mentioned, sometimes you have to retrain certain individuals as far as a career in tech. How do you do that? It's not easy. And it's a, it, it, it's something that takes, it's going to take some time. Mm-hmm. We have, um, we've been focused as our first point. So remember Equitech 2030. So we have a long runway that we know is what it's going to take to really get there. The thing we're starting with out of the, you know, out of the first year sort of really looking at where we think we can have the most impact the fastest. I have a fundamental belief that as a society, we need to place more emphasis on parents. And I have a phrase I use a lot that, you know, we're going to help kids one parent at a time. So so everything that we're starting with is aimed at adults who are looking for a different kind of opportunity because I believe that if that, that the quickest way to change our most challenged communities is to empower and strengthen the adults in those communities because the ripple effect of an adult whose life trajectory shifts ripples to their neighbors, to their children, whereas the ripple effect of a child who gets a better like educational opportunity doesn't really ripple up, right? So, so we're really focused on adults as our first path of opportunity. And we're looking at a series of partnerships with big companies that have certification programs. Um, I don't want to name names because we don't know which ones will solidify, but we've got four 
major tech companies that we're talking with right now where they have the kinds of certifications that can move people into family advancing jobs. And, um, you know, and the distinction there is family sustaining is like, you know, 25, 35, $40,000 maybe in a, in, a, in a city like Baltimore. Family advancing is when you move beyond that $40,000 threshold. And these kind of certified tech jobs are one really concrete path to do that. So that's a first focus for us is how we build three or four key partnerships with these kind of you know, global tech companies who do upskilling work and then work with community-based organizations who have a pool of people who are looking for these kinds of opportunities and bring that all together. So that's the first focus. Over time, we have a whole series of other pieces of that pathways work that we wanna pursue um, but that's our first, you know, really concrete goal. That's great. And who's trained these people? Is it the same tech company or? Yeah, so most of, so each program is slightly different, but most of them actually put trainers on the ground in cities across the country where they have partnerships. Oh, that's great. Okay. Yeah. And right now you're in the process of selecting which one, right? I don't want to make it sound like we have all the control, but we're in the process of building partnerships sure, okay. um, with tech companies. We want them to believe in Baltimore. We want them to meet our, you know, our counterpart local organizations that can provide the talent. Mm -hmm. And we want them to trust us that we'll be, you know, effective cheerleaders on the ground supporters of their work. I see. What would you say drives and motivates you? It's, it's such a big question. I have three kids. I'm going to have grandkids someday, presumably. And is it all three girls too, or no? No, no. Oh. <laughs> two sons and a daughter. Okay. Um, sons who are um, in their uh, one's 31, one's 29. Um, and, and then I have a daughter who's 23. I look ahead at their world or their children's world and I know I know that we have an opportunity right now to to set a different course as a country and a society but I'm a big believer in capitalism and I think it starts with opportunity and pathways of opportunity and I don't mean capitalism in the greedy mercenary way I mean that I've personally experienced and I know so many people that come from underinvested, underestimated backgrounds where, you know, entrepreneurship or the right kind of job pathway has really been the difference in their opportunity. And I don't say that at all to the exclusion of other innovations. Like I'm actually quite a big believer in universal basic income. I think that that is I think that that can can sit, you know, within a capitalistic framework. Um, but in any case, that's one piece. I think that the other thing is I'm just incredibly passionate about Baltimore, and um, and I want to be part of redefining a great American city for its future. So. I think those things drive me. And just in general, I definitely thrive on doing hard things. So uh, I don't know if that's a good enough answer, but that I guess is, 
that's that's at least some of the things that that drive me. I love this passion for Baltimore. It, it reminds me, I think my first trip to Philly, I forgot how old I was, but I was there and I was like, this reminds me a lot of Baltimore. <laughs> yeah. um, there are there definitely <laughs> are a lot of parallels between the cities. I mean, Philly is way bigger. And in tech, um, you know, Philly really started building on its, they, they have a huge pharmaceutical industry in Philadelphia. And that was definitely kind of an anchor growth engine um, in tech in Philly, but lots of other things have sort of grown out of that. Um, I think the Baltimore, the differences between Baltimore and Philly are, Baltimore has this really interesting mixed legacy. It literally sits on the Mason-Dixon line. It, it was one of the first cities that welcomed if you've ever read the history of Baltimore, that welcomed, you know, free, formerly enslaved people into like the economy of Baltimore. Um, and in particular, Fells Point, which is a really beautiful old historic area of Baltimore, was kind of the waterfront and like shipbuilding um, and, and sort of sea merchants part of Baltimore. And it was, that was like, that became a place that was you know, incredibly welcoming of, you know, of formerly enslaved people, but it also has, we've, we've done some of the amazing sort of, like Enoch Pratt Free Library was the first fully open free library in the country to people of all races, but we also were the place where redlining was developed, right? So we've just got this very fraught history. And, um, and I think that if there is a place for Equitech to become a reality, we are the place where that should happen. Jamie, you're so, so much emerged in the business tech entrepreneurial world. If any individual would come to you and said, Jamie, my dream is to have whatever type of company, what are a few pointers, suggestions, advice you would give that person? Yeah, starting a company is, not to be taken lightly is what I would tell them that, you know, they should recognize that entrepreneurship is a fantastic avenue if you can stomach the stress and the ups and downs. It's really, it's really not, it's just not easy, even if you have the greatest idea in the world. And for whatever reason you get lucky and things go well, you're responsible for the livelihood of your employees. You have, you'll have customers, you have, you know, you'll have, you'll, you'll have to raise money or maybe you won't. Some businesses don't have to, but most do, which makes you beholden to other people that get to have opinions about things right and wrong about what you're building. Um, it's a hard thing to do. And so, and I would also say that a lot of people start businesses because they're passionate about some problem that exists in society that they think they can solve with technology or with a product. Often the founder doesn't work on the thing that they're passionate about. You work on everything else, right? And the people that work on the thing that you're passionate about are the product development people or the, the salespeople that get to build relationships with potential customers. You work on 
hiring and fundraising and payroll and you know you work on all the stuff that's not glamorous and fun particularly in the beginning and i just think a lot of entrepreneurs assume that because they're passionate about a problem that they get to work on the problem and they generally don't and i think that the other thing that i would say about being an entrepreneur we're having this conversation a lot right now in baltimore um we check in with our founders a lot wherever they are in their journey. And we were talking to one of our more accomplished founders, you know, a founder that's approaching their series C, business is good. And he sent us a note back this week, which we're gonna share in our newsletter next week, that basically said, with, with everything that has happened in the last three years, with the pandemic, with, you know, all of the, the racial upheaval in our country, with, um, in Baltimore, there's a lot of particular things in Baltimore that people are dealing with. He said, I don't know a single founder that loves their job right now. He said, doesn't matter what stage their company is in. It doesn't matter if they're fundraising or not fundraising. It's just been such a challenging period that every founder is unhappy. And I think that that is a, that's a perspective that is very real and that we don't talk about enough, like how we, care for the you know the innovators by definition innovators live on the edge right they're on the far end of the bell curve because you have to be to make change and and that can be a really lonely stressful place to be so that's advice i'd give a founder think hard about all that it's not an easy road it's not and sometimes so somebody said to me once that that what's that saying about a boat that the happiest day when you own a boat is like the day you buy it and the, the day you sell it right <laughs> i think entrepreneurship is actually a little bit like that too it's like the day you start maybe there's a few big wins but probably the next happiest day is the day you sell it or the the day you decide to walk away which some percentage of entrepreneurs have to do so it's would a, you, oh, go ahead. No, no, it's just, it's, it's a, it's not, it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah, it's not for everyone. So would you then recommend entrepreneurship to any, not anyone, because it's not for anyone, but let's say your children, for example. Well, my children are each really different. And um, for one of them, I would, and for two of them, I wouldn't. Okay. Okay. Or I should say it differently. It's not that I would recommend it. For one of them, I wouldn't necessarily discourage that him. For the other two, I probably would. Okay. I understand. Are there any specific traits or habits you feel you have, Jamie, that have helped you, whether on the business side of things or personally? Yeah, I think that one of my you know, I, I'm a big believer that most people's biggest strength is also their biggest weakness. So, um, so my strength and my weakness is I'm a narrow swinging pendulum, right? And what I mean by that is I don't get too excited when things are good and I don't get too down when things are tough. So because my pendulum swings narrow, like it's, that's a real like coping mechanism as for an entrepreneur. Because if you get too excited when things are good and like too upset when things are bad, it is really hard to keep pushing through those hard moments. Um, so 
that's a strength and a weakness because in other facets of my life, being an arrow swinging pendulum is not a great attribute. Um, so, you know, that I would say that that's, that's one thing. And probably the other thing is, um, I, I participated in this thing once, um, we've all done these like group, it was one of these like business group things and you spend three days together on like a retreat thing. Anyway, at the end, um, people like each person is sort of given like a, a defining characteristic by the group. Mm -hmm. And, and the thing that people told me was I give other people courage. And so that's, that is something else that, I do, I'm a real believer in people's talents and, and I think I can often see like the, the thing that can help them over a hump or help them see an opportunity. And I don't know, it's, it's, and I, and because I'm not, you know, I'm at a different point in my career also, like I'm not trying to prove much myself. And so I'm really like, how do we make, how do we, put every bit of energy and resource into helping other people find their, their path to success. So I don't know. That's another thing. I like that. What's your biggest challenge with your role at Upsurge today? I think the biggest challenge is one that many ecosystem builders, particularly if you think about your ecosystem and you're in a, you know, you're in a black city like Baltimore, um, you know, you're thinking about your ecosystem holistically. I think that it's a difficult line to walk off in between um, recognizing that it's vitally important to have a tech economy. And if you have a tech economy in 21st century America, by definition, it's going to be largely white men right now, right? That doesn't mean that that has to be what we're, you know, and we want to celebrate those innovators, right? Like we're not, we aren't taking anything away from the, the creativity, the, the sort of the support they need and how much we want to celebrate the impact that they can have on changing the world and employing people and, you know, being those you know, those bright lights that show that you can build a great company in Baltimore. At the same time, we also know that, and I have, I have children that fall in this category should they ever become entrepreneurs, that the access to networks, to money, to experience, to just that innate um, entitlement that this is a possible path puts people on a different path than folks who haven't had those same experiences. And so, so how we walk that line between saying, look, because even when I talk to black founders, they're like, look, I don't want to go to any city where I don't know tech can thrive. So you got to show me that a tech economy exists, period, right? It's why you see entrepreneurs from all different backgrounds you know, migrating very much to traditional tech hubs because they too want to be in places where they know tech can thrive. So it's a, it's a real juggling act to both support, grow, nurture, 
and align around the tech companies that have momentum, but also to recognize that in many instances, they have momentum because they've had a stepping stone sequence of opportunities that have put them in a place where they can build a thriving company. And how do we build those steps of opportunity for a lot of other people to recognize that they too can build here? So it's, a, it's, a, it's an important tension, but one that we're tackling every day. Yeah. You've had such a rich business career and background. What do you know now, Jamie, that you wish you would have known at the start of your career? Yeah, I don't know, really. I think if you think about the eras I've worked through, I mean, going into investment banking in the mid 80s, when not my first boss, who was awesome, and somebody that like really changed the trajectory of my life. But my second boss was a guy that in my first meeting with him, told me that I wore my skirts too long. I mean, we, 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 and, and that honestly was like, I don't even say that, like, that's a big deal. That was totally normal, right? That, that, like, I was in an era when things for women were certainly changing, but it was very normal for men to feel that they could say things like that to women and for women to sort of just swallow hard and be like, you know, okay, like, I've got a great job. I work for a guy who's sort of a caveman. All right, we're going to deal with it, right? Like, so, so I think that in some ways, because I started in my professional life when I did, I was really learning in the moment the things I needed to know to survive in that environment, particularly coming from my background where I never knew a business person. Everybody I knew was in the services industry growing up, right? You know, they, they worked in, in retail shops or my mom worked at the Y, like everybody was in the services industry. So business was sort of a whole different thing. Um, and so it is a little hard for me to sort of say like, what do I wish I knew then? I think what I would say to a young person today is that like no job is is perfect every job has both the exciting and the mundane and truthfully you're lucky if you get to like 60 or 70 percent exciting and 30 or 40 percent mundane like that's a great job right most are more like 50 50 and and so like go into any job just saying like how do I extract as much learning as I possibly can? I, yeah, I've gone through this with my own kids. Pick a job based on the people more than the role. Because if you go in and you like the people and you are motivated to work hard and you're smart enough, you know, like people will adjust a role to fit a really good person, right? But yes. people aren't going to adjust a role to fit somebody who's not happy or who feels like they don't fit with the team. Um, and then I would say, give it a little time. I think that there's a generation of people now that tend to switch jobs every year or two. And um, sometimes you don't find your rhythm in a place for two or three years. So give it a little time and just keep extracting the learning that you can and keep offering input and asking for input. 
I don't know. Those are things I would tell somebody today getting started. No, that's all great advice. Thank you. Did, did you did you have any big mentors? And if so, what did you learn from them? I did have a couple of mentors that were really important in my life. I don't think we used that term back then. <laughs> they were like, they were my bosses, but they were bosses who just really saw in me um, perhaps even more than I was seeing in myself at the time. And so I, one in particular, several, the, the guy that first hired me was truly somebody that just, he was one of those people that could convey a lot of belief in someone else. So I model, I had that model from the beginning of my career. And, um, but, but my second kind of, the, the, my second really high impact boss um, not the guy I mentioned a moment ago. Um, he said something to me once that has really been a credo I try to live by. Um, it was it was when I I was up for a big promotion and I didn't get it the first time around, and I was probably too young really to get it. This was not managing director. This was the one before that, and um, it was to be be a principal, and and I. I was so pissed. I just thought like, you know, I, I, I had much more youthful <laughs> emotions then than I do now. And, um, and I kind of went to him a little bit foot stomping, you know, like what the heck. Mm -hmm. And, and he's, you know, he kind of sat me down and he said, he said, Jamie, you have accomplished so much in such a short time. Like, you know, you've done this and this and this. He kind of enumerated all these things. He's like, you've just gotten this co-headship. You're, you know, you're in a role that based on, you know, where you started, the path you've been able to carve out for yourself here is one that just like has unlimited opportunity. Like, and he said to me, he said, you know what? You're always looking up the mountain at how far you still have to climb. He said, you got to turn around every once in a while and look back down the mountain. And that is literally something like I will occasionally say that to myself and I say it to my team. I've done this now through many iterations of my companies and my career that we've got to take those moments, like take a day once a quarter when we sort of have a look down the mountain session, like look at all we accomplished this quarter, can't even talk about what's still ahead. So that has that that idea of stopping, turning around and looking back down the mountain is something I really took from as he gave me a lot of other good advice, but that's one that has always really stuck with me. And, um, you know, and look, then you're going to turn around and you're going to keep looking up and you keep going, but to take those moments and sort of look like, okay, I get to, I get to appreciate the view from here for a minute. Like that's a really powerful thing. I like that coming to an end here now, Jamie, and talking about up the mountain, what does the future look like for you in Upsurge Baltimore for the next couple of years? I, I know you have the 2030 mission and vision there. Yeah. So um, the, there are a whole bunch of things that we're working on, but probably the one thing we really haven't spoken about the most is one of our core strategies. So we've got company support. So, you know, if you think about, about how you grow a city, We've got to make sure that the companies that are already launching and growing in Baltimore have everything they need to be successful. And whether that is 
education, whether that's access to networks, whether that's introductions to investors, whether that's peer support, we're working on building out all that infrastructure so that companies in Baltimore have everything they need to be successful. The second piece is you've got to attract companies from the outside. So our core company attraction strategy is the goal that we have to build a global Equitech accelerator hub in Baltimore with 10 accelerators. So we want to have 10 global accelerators by 2025. And what I mean by that is these would be accelerators that would be MVP stage or beyond. We've got lots of other incubators and accelerators that exist in Baltimore today that are concept and idea stage, super early stage accelerators. We were missing that like next stage accelerator. So the Techstars Equitech Accelerator is one of those. Then we built a partnership with Stanley Black & Decker and they moved an accelerator from Hartford to Baltimore. So that's two of these kind of global accelerators. Now we're working on, I've got five active conversations. We wanna have 10 of these by 2025. I'd like to have two or three more signed this year. And the reason that these accelerators are important is because you can't just go around the country and say, come move your company to Baltimore, it's awesome, right? What we need to do is we need to give people the experience of being in the tech community in Baltimore for a period of time and weaving them in, introducing them to the people who make a difference in the tech community here, showing them the real estate in Baltimore and how well you can live inexpensively in Baltimore, meeting the other brilliant people that live in our city. So we, we, had, we had that as a thesis and we've tested it with the first two um, Techstars Equitech and Stanley Techstars classes. And in those first two classes, there were 21 companies initially, two were from Baltimore. So we sort of take them off the table. Of the 19 that weren't from Baltimore, nine have either moved here or are making their international companies that are making Baltimore a US home. So if you think about that, nine of 19 get to experience the ecosystem and decide that this is a great place to stay and grow. So we won't always be at 50%. That's not even our goal. Our goal is 25 to 30. But if we can build these 10 accelerators, have you know 150 to 200 companies accelerating here every single year, and we're keeping a chunk of those companies, that plus the organic growth of the companies that are growing in Baltimore will create this 2030 most inclusive tech ecosystem in the world. That's how we do it. So that's one big piece that we haven't talked about. And, you know, and it's our core company attraction strategy. So we're working really hard at that. I love that. Almost 50%. That's great. We don't expect that to be. Okay. That that's, I think that we, I think that, I think, I think it, we're benchmarking 25 to 30%. Sure. I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> if we outperform, I'll be happy, but that our expectation and our numbers are built around that lower number. Okay. Maybe it's beginner's luck, who knows, but that, that, that's great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you're not busy working, what do you like to do for fun in your free time? Um, so I've mentioned sports a lot. So I, I play a lot of racket sports. I play a lot of tennis. Um, I play pickleball. I will, I will run and walk and I just, I love, you know, I love physical activity, but I particularly love sports. I would much prefer playing a sport to working out. Um, so, so that is a big part of my free time. Um, 
I am also, a, I like games. So I'm a big game player. I play like pretty expert level backgammon. And <laughs> I um, play a lot of card games with my family and other people. And so I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, and, and I do all of this, like I am competitive, but I'm really competitive against myself. Like I, I don't mind losing in tennis, for example, if I've played well and I hate winning ugly, right? Like I just, I like, I, I, I work hard against myself. So that's, I am my, uh, I'm my biggest competitor. I just got into pickleball earlier this year, Jamie, and for the, I took some classes and I love it. it yeah. It's great. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Um, yeah. It's funny. It was really thought of as kind of an older person sport for a long time, but now I play with people from like their twenties to their seventies. I love that about it. Yeah. I, I was trying to get into some group, but then it was saying you have to have a minimum age requirement. And I'm like, okay, I don't meet that yet. But <laughs> speaking of the why it was through the why I was able to get in and learn my local why. And then that's how I picked up pickleball. And actually my post today in LinkedIn, it's about pickleball. Oh, um, funny. I'll yeah, have to check it yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, and I, I think that the other thing about it that is, um, like, so it, we, during COVID, my kids all came to our house and we all kind of, we were a pod and, um, and I bought a pickleball net for our driveway. Wasn't quite the right size, but we made it work. And we, we would put out like chalk lines and like, we could just all go out and just, it's like the fact that it's kind of compact and yes. that you can, you can like literally buy a net and sort of set up chalk and play almost anywhere that's, that's much harder to do with so many sports. And so it, I really do think that it's accessibility that way is something that um, is part of the reason it's catching on so fast, but yeah, it is, it's really a fun sport. Yeah, that's great. Jamie, if people want to learn more about you and Upsurge Baltimore, where can they find out more information, please? They can just go to upsurgebaltimore.com and um, we're in the midst of a, you know, we still have our first generation website up and like cobbler's kids, you know, have no shoes. Like we, we need to have our own better website. So we're, um, we're in a big, the midst of a big website redo to reflect kind of the work that's taken place this first year. So keep an eye out in another few weeks. Um, we've got some, some exciting evolutions coming to our own site. Um, nice. But upsurgebaltimore.com gives a good picture of our work. Great. Jamie, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's my pleasure. Great to meet you. And uh, let's keep building the DMV into the tech powerhouse we know it can be. I agree. We need to be up there. Well, we're, we're up there, but we want to keep we wanna climbing. Be, we want to be right up there with the top ecosystems in the world. So yeah. thanks so much for your help. Of course. Thank you. Take care. Talk soon. Bye bye. -bye. If you haven't done so already, please make sure to subscribe to the show and leave a review and comment and let me know what you think. Thank you, and I'll see you all very soon on the next episode.